Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I'll be your host. First off, as always, we want to say thank you for your support. We're both so happy to be able to create something that other people are enjoying. We do have a few social medias that I want to shout out real quick. We like hearing from you guys. We like hearing feedback. We want to know what you guys want to hear about. And we also just like knowing how we're doing. On Twitter, we're at beyond underscore breakers. Instagram is beyond the breakers podcast. Our email is beyond the breakers pod at gmail.com. And we do have a Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash beyond the breakers. Money from the Patreon just goes to making the podcast better. Uh, research materials, web posting, that kind of thing. We don't want to run ads, so we, we have that instead. If you feel like uh, you want to toss us a, a buck, feel free. If not, enjoy the show. With that stuff out of the way, uh, I'll go ahead and bring in Tanner. How you doing? Oh, hey, pretty good, pretty good. Got my window open. It's not oppressively <laughs> hot here today. Nice. I know we were talking about that before we started recording. It's been it's been really hot here for the last like four or five days, like upper like mid to upper nineties. It's it's pretty bad out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we haven't had many days in the nineties here, fortunately. But this is just the most like consistently hot summer that I feel like I remember. I can't imagine why that is, though. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. Yeah, so uh, I think we have a pretty good show today. It's an interesting topic. It's one I've, you know, sometimes you kind of know a long time in advance what you want to do. Other times you just kind of find something when you're scrolling Instagram that you don't know about. You get clicking and before you know it, you're kind of down the rabbit hole. And that's that's what's happened this week. Mm -hmm. Uh, This week we are going to be talking about the RMS Lancastria. Have you ever heard of that before today? No, absolutely not. I had not heard of it either prior to, to finding it in, uh, I think it was like an old ocean liner Instagram page that I was flipping through mm-hmm. because I'm that kind of a nerd on Instagram. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know. It, it became a really interesting story and I guess we'll, uh, we'll, we'll kind of get into it. Let's start talking about the background of this one. Right. The, uh, the RMS Lancastria was built in 1920 by William Beardmore and company and she's actually built for a company called Anchor Line. And they're a part of a more famous company, the Cunard Line. So, you know, White Star and Cunard. Like, those are the two big ocean, mm-hmm. like, liner companies. I mean, you think most of the liners you can name, it probably belonged to one of those companies. Right. So, she originally has a different name. She's originally known as the Tyrenia. And she has a sister ship called the Cameronia. It's kind of went with some difficult names. Like these don't exactly roll off the tongue, mm-hmm. I don't feel like. And the Cameronia had actually been launched a year prior. So as far as the Lancastria goes, she was 578 feet long, 70 feet wide, and she drew about 31 feet of water. So she's a large vessel. I mean, she's built in the same vein as, you know, the uh, large ocean liners that, that you think of from, like, movies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Classic movies uh, like... Ghost ship. A ghost ship, Poseidon adventure, yes. that kind of thing. Originally, she had the capacity to carry around t- uh, 2,200 people in a three-class configuration. So think, again, for most people, think something like the Titanic. I mean, it's, it's, it's on par with something like that in concept. In 1924, she goes through an overhaul, and that results in a two-class configuration. And she, that's when she's given the new name, Lancastria. Nice to see the class divisions disappearing slightly. <laughs> I didn't actually research what the the change was. I'm assuming that it was like an elimination of 
third class and you know more of a luxurious thing to kind of be first class and second class but i don't actually know they cut it down to just the rich people and everyone else is just the untouchables (laughs) yeah there is no second class so actually the name change is interesting this was apparently the result of passengers complaining that the original name was too hard to say i thought that was kind of funny there's like a complaint box when they get off the ship like i had a hard time telling people what ship i was on I don't know. Yeah, like, I don't know why that, that would have mattered, but apparently it did. So from 1924 to 1939, her life is, you know, fairly uneventful as far as these things go. She sails between Liverpool and New York, and then later she serves as a cruise ship in the Mediterranean. That's what kind of leads me to believe that they probably eliminated third class portion if she was serving as a cruise ship. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not you wouldn't want to be in steerage for a vacation. Right. Um, In 1932, she actually helps in the rescue of a sinking Belgian Congo ship. (laughs) Oh, Belgian cargo ship, not Congo. Belgian Congo is something very different. That was definitely a Freudian slip. If you get that, you get that. You don't ever (laughs) want to be on a Belgian Congo ship. No, that's uh, King Leopold's bad. (laughs) Whoops. We're going to leave that in. Yeah. In, uh, so in 1936, she's commissioned to visit various war memorials in places such as Malta and Gallipoli. So it's kind of a tour of World War I sites. This brings us to September of 1939. Uh, the Lancaster is actually in the Bahamas when she's ordered to set sail for New York to be overhauled as a troop ship, as she had been requisitioned by the British government. What's going on in 1939 for the listeners? Well, nothing, because World War II certainly didn't start until December 7th, 1941. (laughs) We're definitely going to kind of get into that concept as an American here as we we continue going. All right. Yeah, obviously, this is part of the buildup and mobilization of troops in the early stages of World War II. You know, the British government needs to get people from Commonwealth countries such as Canada over to, you know, the European theater and ships like this is how they're going to do it. Uh, This officially changed her name to the HMT Lancastria, so Her Majesty's troop ship. Or his, right, at this or point. Or his. His or hers, yes. His. This requisition process would have been very similar to what we discussed in the Britannic episode. So basically, the British government's like, hey, we need this. This is ours now. That's a nice cruise ship you've got there. Right. It'd be a shame <laughs> if someone requisitioned it. Exactly. Some of the changes that were done, it you know, it, obviously they remove a lot of the amenities that are purely for passenger comfort. You're not trying to be comfortable. You're trying to cram as many people as you can, you know, to make that transatlantic crossing. The vessels kind of painted a drab, like battleship gray. They black out portholes and they actually install four inch guns on her deck. So she becomes a war vessel, basically. Lancastria began her war service carrying men from Canada to the United Kingdom. She would later take part in operations such as Operation Alphabet, which is the evacuation of Norway. She was one of 20 troop ships that actually participated in this, and she would be attacked by multiple waves of Luftwaffe bombers. However, she would be undamaged in all of this. So it's kind of interesting. Like At first, you see her taking troops over to the European theater, and then as things begin to go less than optimal, and we begin to pull out of continental Europe, she does the opposite. She starts ferrying people to the U.K., mm-hmm. Lancaster would then transport troops in support of the British invasion of Iceland. This was a really interesting note that I didn't know a lot about. Like, I didn't know that Britain technically invaded a neutral country when uh, going to Iceland. I don't Uh, think I knew that either. 
I yeah, Iceland had declared itself staunchly neutral between Germany and the Allied powers, but due to its strategic importance in the Atlantic, the United Kingdom could not allow for the possibility of Germany taking control of it. So in May of 1940, they actually launched an invasion of Iceland. As an American, along with so much more of this story, like this is not stuff that we're taught in school. This is not stuff that we learn about even digging deeper into World War II stuff. Like we were talking before we started recording. We both, I think, have an above average knowledge of, of World War II. I didn't know about this stuff. Yeah, I didn't know that uh, Iceland was invaded, certainly. And I'd never heard of this ship before. It's interesting. Everybody gets one neutral country you can invade. <laughs> Everybody gets one. Yeah, I mean, this the way that World War II especially is taught here, it, it, nothing happens before December 7th, 1941, except maybe, like, the Battle of Britain. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, that, that's what you learn about. It's just a very interesting thing to see that there's so much more going on. There's so many more dynamics at play than kind of what we commonly think of. Right. So now that we've laid a little bit of the background of the vessel and a little bit of the background of kind of the world that it's existing in, let's get on to the part that we're here to talk about, the actual... uh Incident. So after assisting in the invasion of Iceland, the Lancastria was ordered back to Liverpool to undergo an overhaul. So, you know, she's been doing a lot of transporting. It's time to get things in there, you know, maintenance, upgrades, that kind of thing. So as a result of this, her crew are sent home or given extended leave. Uh, You know, you're not going to keep a bunch of crew members just sitting around a port. Like you're going to release them back home while this is being done. As that happens, the decision is almost immediately reversed. And actually, there's stories that, like, there's literally crew being stopped at the train station in Liverpool, like, being told, go back. Like, you know, you you don't have leave anymore. It's a rough way to start your leave. It is. It's not great. And the reason for that is basically the collapse of the Allied powers in continental Europe. Mm-hmm. I know a couple of years ago, the movie Dunkirk came out. This, this is that time, basically. That's what's happening. And actually, the story we'll be talking about is a couple weeks after the events of Dunkirk, but it's very much a similar type story. Mm-hmm. She then sails to Plymouth on June 15th, 1940, and she awaits further orders. Eventually, those orders do come down. The Lancastria is dispatched to Quiberon Bay with another vessel named the Franconia. So this is all part of an operation known as Operation Ariel. And their mission is to evacuate some of the 100,000-plus British Expeditionary Force troops that have been cut off by the rapid German advance. Is that Operation Ariel, like, something that's in the sky or, like, the mermaid? <laughs> I don't see it. I just don't see it written anywhere, so I'll, uh, I'll check it out. I believe it's A-R-I-E-L, I believe, is how it's spelled. Oh, cool. Good to know. I don't know, I don't know how that affects the story at all, but... <laughs> All right. So again, this is a scene just very similar to think think of something like Dunkirk. Like there's a lot of people that need to get from France to the United Kingdom and the German army is, you know, pushing their advance. No one's quite sure how long they have to be evacuated basically. Mm-hmm. So while in route, it becomes apparent that the ships would not be required for that particular evacuation and she's rerouted to St. Nazaire. While in route to St. Nazaire, the Francona is damaged by a German air raid. Keep German air raids in mind. They're going to be important as the story carries on. All right. So the Franconia returns to England, and this leaves the Lancastria to proceed alone. So, you know, in theory, there's kind of safety in numbers. If for no other reason than 
you're not the only target. Like, maybe you don't get hit. Maybe it's the other guy. Right. Lancastria arrives at the Lore Estuary on June 16th, and she anchors with a group of 30 other merchant vessels, and she waits for favorable ties to enter the estuary. So early in the morning of June 17th, Royal Navy Reserve officers come aboard to determine how many men could be loaded on board. It's always good when, like, there's no limits. Like, let's just see how many we can cram in here. No, no previous story has ever been bad because of that, has it? No, no, I don't <laughs> think that happens. So in normal times, she could accommodate around 2,200 soldiers plus 330 crew. The captain of the vessel is a man named Captain Sharp, and he had <laughs> skippered the vessel during the evacuation of Norway. He reported that in Norway, he had taken 2,653, but in a pinch, he could take 3,000. Hmm. And I just picture that being delivered in like the most British way possible. In a pinch, yes. Also, yeah. I, Captain Sharp, I picture this being delivered by Sean Bean. <laughs> he should play him in the movie. He should. He was told by the Navy Reserve officers that he should take as many of them as he possibly could without regard to limits of international law, which sounds like, I mean, and for what we talk about normally, it's like, oh, they're clearly flaunting safety regulations, but like your choices are to get captured by the Nazis or get on the boat. Mm-hmm. Like I get it. Like it's not a time to, you know, cross every T and dot every I <laughs> like you're, you're trying to do another Dunkirk basically. Speaking of the limits of international law, the Nazis. <laughs> so troops were then ferried out to her on tugs, fishing vessels, destroyers, basically whatever they had. So they're, you know, they're making runs to the shore and back out. I think I read somewhere the round trip was like two hours. So like, this is a slow process. This mm-hmm. isn't something that's, you know, we dock for an hour, load up. It's not a cruise ship. You're not just walking up the gangway. Mm-hmm. So estimates range anywhere from 4,000 to 9,000 soldiers were loaded onto the vessel. Uh, point being, we don't actually know. That's a huge range, and the upper limit is extremely high. Yeah, I feel like there's no way there was 9,000. 9,000? I mean, again, not, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of this, but that seems, that seems like an insane number of people to have on a ship. Captain Sharp estimates that there are around 5,500 people on board the vessel. And I don't know, I would have to think he would have a decent idea, being familiar with the vessel and having done this before, mm-hmm. that... You know, I would think he'd be in the neighborhood at least. There's another report that one of Lancaster's loading officers stated that 7,200 people had been loaded onto the ship. Mm. It's also worth noting that these weren't just soldiers. There was also women and children amongst those who uh, were on board. You know, there's various different situations happen that uh, that ends up being a thing. Regardless of the exact number, there's absolutely no one that disputes that the vessel was packed. There's reports of literally every available space being filled below deck. So it's cramped, it's hot, it's hard to move around. Again, certainly nothing bad has ever happened in conditions like that. Yeah. So at 1.50 in the afternoon, a German air raid struck the nearby Oronsee, a passenger liner belonging to the Orient Line, and she had also been turned into a troop ship. So same situation. It's a large passenger liner being used as a troop ship. The bomb struck the ship's bridge, destroying her chart, steering, and wireless rooms. Additionally, it kills multiple people and breaks the captain's legs. Uh, Fortunately, despite all this, the ship's still serviceable, and she's able to sail. So it was, you know, 
damaged and people were killed, but it wasn't like a structural thing. Like the hull and all that is still good. It's kind of just communications and things like that that are damaged. Right. But again, keep in mind, this is just showing you that the Germans are more than willing to launch air raids and they're, they're pretty good at attacking shipping. Like they're able to operate with some success. One thing I know about the Luftwaffe, more than happy to do air raids. <laughs> so at this time, the Lancastria was told she was clear to leave and even encouraged to do so by the captain of the British destroyer HMS Havelock. So the British Navy is basically telling them, like, you need to go. Like, let's get moving. But Sharp decided he wanted to wait since he didn't have any destroyer escorts to protect him against submarine attack. Basically, there's just not enough Navy vessels to go around. He felt he would be safer once the Oransay is able to get underway. He wants to sail with someone else. Again, maybe not even because you're able to resist an attack more, but safety in numbers, you know. Yeah. At least gives you're you're not the only target. Yeah, it might it might not be you. Unfortunately, in their case, it is definitely. (laughs) So at uh, 3:50 in the afternoon, a new German air raid commences. Junker Ju-88 bombers descend on the Lancastria, and they're able to score three or possibly four hits with their bombs. So, again, clearly they've had some practice at this. They know what they're doing, and clearly they're able to operate effectively. It seems clear to me that Germany has air superiority in this scenario. Mm -hmm. There's multiple reports from survivors that one of the bombs fell directly down the ship's single funnel. That had to be like a surreal scene. If that actually happened, can you imagine? Like, that would be like something from a movie. That, That's, that, like, is, that is Luke Skywalker in the Death Star. <laughs> like, if that was in a movie, like, that's silly. Like, why Why did they have to? Yeah, why did you have to include that detail? It honestly seems like something that they would have put in uh, the movie Pearl Harbor. And you'd be like, okay, I see that you just wanted to play with the CGI. Mm-hmm. Regardless of bomb placement, the results were catastrophic. The ship almost immediately begins to list to starboard. Men on the top deck are ordered to move to the port side of the vessel, but this causes a port list that's ultimately not able to be corrected. So some of the accounts I was reading basically said that the way that the ship acts after it's struck and how quickly it basically becomes unrecoverable, the story of the bomb down the uh, funnel makes sense. Mm. It it actually seems like that probably happened. So those men being ordered to move, is that like in our previous stories we've done where they're being moved to correct that starboard list? Yeah, you're essentially treating... Using them as ballast? Ballast, yeah. Like you're, you're using them to try to fix a problem. But in this case, this is basically a fatal strike immediately. Mm-hmm. Like this is not a recoverable event. So Lancastria had 16 lifeboats. However, many of these were not able to be launched due to damage from bombing or due to the angle of the ship's list. So it's the same old story. Lifeboats are great until you can't launch them. This mm-hmm. is something that we've seen in countless uh, examples. Uh, the first lifeboat launched was full of women and children. However, it almost immediately capsizes. The second lifeboat was launched in order to attempt to save them. The third lifeboat launched was destroyed when it hit the water because it was launched too quickly. Those were the only accounts of lifeboats I found, is that three lifeboats were launched. Mm-hmm. And only one of them was productive and it capsized, so not great. Many of those who jumped over the side of the vessel were killed when they landed on the hull of the ex- uh, that was exposed from the water. Others had their necks broken when they jumped into the water while wearing their life jackets. So this list is so extreme so quickly, 
you know, you've got people jumping into water from 30, 40, 50 feet in the air. Mm-hmm. And I guess that doesn't sound that bad when, like, in theory, but like look over like a 30 foot drop and directly into the water. Like I wouldn't want to do it. And I mean, obviously this scene is pretty bad, pretty quick. There's oil in the water, you know, the, there's, there's fire all around. It's not just like you're jumping into a lake. Like it's, it's a pretty apocalyptic scene very quickly. Lancastria quickly began to roll over. Some of the more lucky survivors were able to hang onto the vessel and kind of roll with her, and they climb onto the top of the exposed hull. I think we actually saw some accounts of that in the uh, Empress of Ireland episode, mm-hmm. where she rolls over, but some people are able to kind of ride that. There's reports that these survivors saying, roll out the barrel, and there will always be in England, although this is denied by many survivors. But it does make for a much better story, I feel like. It adds a lot of that sort of stereotypical, like, stiff upper lip uh, yeah. stoicism to it. But at the same time, I feel like it offhandedly, I would say, I don't believe that. Right. Yeah, it definitely feels like uh, something from a movie. And like you said, it's almost that stereotypical, like, hey, this sucks, but like, we're going to get through it yeah. together. Also funny for American, particularly baseball fans. Roll Out the Barrel is a song <laughs> that is sung at every Milwaukee Brewers game. So it's just kind of funny that it would appear here. And this is not a barrel of fun. This, no, this not story. a barrel of fun. This is not good. So the ship sinks at 4.12, only 20 minutes after the attack had begun. Uh, this meant that although many vessels are nearby, they had little time to respond to the situation. And not to mention, other ships around are trying to avoid air raids. Mm-hmm. They're trying to evacuate people from the beachhead it's a chaotic scene it's not like in the the queen of the north where there's multiple vessels just waiting to rescue people like Mm -hmm. people are trying to avoid becoming victims themselves many of the survivors quickly succumbed to hypothermia or fell victim to exhaustion because they there weren't enough life jackets to go around additionally there are reports that german aircraft strafe survivors in the water i mean believable i'm sure that things like that happened yeah that's an interesting detail I'd be interested in reading more about that to see, like, what, like, is this corroborated by multiple sources? Yeah, and it's hard in a story like this where there aren't a lot of details because so much of it was, like, covered up and secret. Yeah. But, like, are we just adding that detail in to paint the Germans as, like, exactly. barbarians? Like, I'm not, not trying to give the German Luftwaffe in 1940 the benefit of the doubt. Right. But, yeah, it'd be interesting to like, know. Right. Like, I, I could definitely see it being true. If, if that's what they're saying happened, it probably happened. So the British submarine trawler Cambridge Shire is one of the first vessels on scene. Now she's credited with saving almost 900 people. Of particular note is a crew member named Stanley Kingett. He made repeated trips in a lifeboat to grab men out of the water while under near constant strafing from German planes overhead. So that kind of corroborates that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's definitely German planes operating and and hindering this rescue operation. And the next guy actually also kind of plays into that. Another crewman named William Perrin is credited with maintaining near continuous machine gun fire towards the enemy in an attempt to provide some relief from the German attacks. Mm -hmm. So clearly there's an air operation going on that that is not disputed. Right. In total. 2,477 people are officially listed as surviving the sinking of the Lancastria. Death toll estimates range from 3,000 to 5,800. 
although one source states that it could be up to 6,500 people. Uh, as we often see, without proper documentation, it's truly impossible to get accurate numbers of casualties in a situation like this. But it is interesting to note that these deaths would account for nearly one-third of all losses by the British Expeditionary Force in France. That's kind of a crazy number. Like That, that to me, seems this conceptually kind of weird that one-third of their losses come just from this one incident in 20 minutes. From one ridiculously well-placed bomb. Yeah, and that's what it truly seems like. Because, I mean, as we saw with um, the other ship that was attacked, these large ocean liners, it takes more than a bomb to sink them. You mm-hmm. know, like, it took a bomb to the bridge. And although, yeah, it's not great, like, it's still serviceable. So some of it comes down to just kind of dumb luck and chance. So let's talk about the response uh, to all of this. This is not a great time for the British government for multiple reasons. The British government acts quickly to suppress news of the sinking. Churchill uses the D-notice system. And basically, I uh, did a little research on that. It's basically a system in which he was able to stop newspapers and radio stations from broadcasting information that would hurt like national security. Mm-hmm. And they deemed this is one of those events that, you know, we don't want this broadcast to people. We don't want people knowing that this happened. Yeah. Uh, if you think about it, there's enough bad things going on with things like Dunkirk and all these other evacuations and being pushed out of continental Europe. Do you really want to say like, Hey, we might've lost 5,000 soldiers to mm-hmm. a sinking. Yeah. And I guess my understanding of the D-notice system, I've seen it come up in a few different places. My understanding of it is that it is essentially just like a very, 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 very strong request, basically, from the government that isn't necessarily legally actionable. But kind of like understood. It's sort of like you, it's in your best interest, probably in the long run, to just do this right now for us. That's my understanding of it. I don't know at the time, and and obviously, crisis situation, I don't know if there's emergency government powers being sort of called into play here also. But yeah, it's an interesting situation with the the interaction between the government and the media. Sort of like how those Russian journalists keep winding up dead, variously. Mm -hmm. So, Churchill stated, the newspapers have got quite enough disaster for today, at least. That kind of sums up his thoughts, that they don't need another thing to report on. Churchill would later clarify that he meant to lift the ban after a couple days, but events in France had basically had him distracted. Again, the man had a lot on his plate at this point. Yeah, I would say so. He was, he was a little busy. I struggle to send like more than three emails in a day if I have to, <laughs> so I can understand him uh, maybe not having time to think about this. The sinking was announced on the evening of June 17th by the English-language Nazi propaganda radio program, Germany calling. This carried little public weight in Britain as reports from the program were known to be inaccurate. Uh, <laughs> everyone knew that this was a propaganda program. This is that Onion article, the the worst person you know just made a great point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. So yeah, those reports really aren't taken as credible. And it's actually kind of crazy to think though, in like today's social media age, that you could hide something like this. Mm-hmm. Basically, they were able to hide this from being confirmed as true for for far longer than you would think. Right. Uh, The story is finally broken in the United States by the New York Times on July 25th. And on July 26th in Britain, the newspaper The Scotsman breaks the story. This is almost a month later, over a month later. 
Like, it's pretty impressive. That's a, a solid media suppression campaign. Yeah. So earlier reports had begun to leak out through local British newspapers, but none of these had really been confirmed by the government. A man named H.J. Cooper is quoted in the Talmsford Chronicle on June 28th. I'm afraid thousands died, but tell the world they sang roll out the barrel as they died. And I think this might be where that story kind of comes from. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't seem accurate. It seems more like something you'd say kind of in like the bar room or something just to kind of almost give meaning to like what happened when there probably is no meaning. It, it seems especially weird, you know, the the number of I get the number of sinkings that we have discussed and researched and it's like okay, stop singing and do something. Like, there's there's tons of other stuff to be concerned with as this is happening uh, in terms of, like, helping other people or helping yourself. Maybe don't be singing Roll Out the Barrel. Maybe this <laughs> is not the time for that. Elements of Lancastria's loss still seem to be shrouded in British government secrecy, or at least were till very recently. As recently as 2007, requests from the Minister of the Ministry of Defense for documents were rejected. It just it seems odd that in 2007, the British government still doesn't want to release everything. In 2009, the Lancastria Association of Scotland made further requests that were also rejected. And then in 2015, the Ministry of Defense states that all documents relating to the sinking have long since been released to the National Archives. So it's kind of weird that in 2007, they are rejecting requests. And then in 2015, they say that it's been released for a long time. See, this is how conspiracy theories take off. It's like, okay, if there's really nothing that bad in it, just let us see it. Exactly. Like, and also, from something that happened so long ago. Exactly. Like what, it's like, what, what state secrets are we holding on to at this now, point? Now we're just going to start making stuff up in our heads. Yeah, I, I'm assuming that it's more of just like the embarrassment kind of of it happening and how it was covered up. Of Especially in this time period, how everyone wants to support the troops and honor those who you know fought. Mm-hmm. But it's a little disgraceful to look back at something like this, where the what we say is the greatest generation, you know, wasn't appreciated in that moment. Right. It wasn't acknowledged. So on June 17th, 2015, that's 75 years after the sinking, the loss of the Lancastria was recognized by Parliament. Chancellor George Osborne stated it was kept secret at the time for reasons of wartime secrecy. But I think it is appropriate today in this House of Commons, to remember all of those who died, those who survived, and those who mourned them. And and this was actually, like, one of the first real recognitions that this event happened. That's pretty crazy to think that only six years ago, like, this was officially recognized in British Parliament. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a long time. But I guess it's also, I mean, that's also par for the course. I mean, I the United States, I feel like we, we do the same thing, didn't we? like relatively recently acknowledged that wounded knee was a massacre. Yeah. I mean, I think you definitely have things like that, that um, not that this is on par with that. Obviously there's different things going on. Um, but in terms of just like covering things up and then becoming transparent about them. Right. And I think it's just one of those things where enough time passes probably that like new generations come in and value things differently or have mm-hmm. more context historically mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, to release that kind of thing or have that kind of a statement. Right. But it's really interesting just to see how long it took for this to happen. We'll kind of talk a little bit here in the concluding parts of this. This will probably be a little bit shorter because there's just 
it's a pretty cut and dry episode, honestly, but still very interesting because of the cover-ups, because of you know how relatively unknown this event is for something so so massively tragic. Mm-hmm. What I was left with as I was kind of doing this research, I was just surprised to see that this is the greatest loss of life in British maritime history. And I was unaware of this until about two weeks ago. Obviously, a lot of that's due to the secrecy of the loss and kind of just the gaps in my knowledge of the early stages of World War II. It's kind of showing our biases as Americans that it's just not something that we know as much about. But it's just one of those we talk about all the time. It's one of those maritime disasters that is like on a truly staggering scale. And it's, you know, it's truly an epic tragedy. But people don't know it. If I asked you, like, what's the worst uh, British maritime disaster? Like, how many people would say Titanic? Because yeah. that's what they know. Mm-hmm. And, like, you wouldn't be wrong. Like, the, the, Titanic, the Titanic is truly tragic. But the fact that, you know, we can shed a little light on a story like this, I think, is kind of cool. Yeah, I feel like every... It seems like on this show, every other week, we talk about a shipwreck that is some sort of superlative. The largest or the greatest death toll... You know, whether it's in Canada's history or in the U.S. in in, in British history, I feel like every week we're, we're hitting some sort of superlative. And, you know, there's times that I'm researching something and that that doesn't even really come up until late in the research process. It sort of captures, I guess, the I don't know how often these things happened in the past and how, I don't know, truly grand scale that a lot of these things were. Um, and then, like you said, it's it's. It's both strange, but also kind of not given, you know, some of the, the, the situations that we we just don't learn about these. We don't know about these things. Right. Um, and and like in this story, like you said, I would say that the vast majority of Americans don't know much about World War Two before 1941. And so especially something like this is going to fly under the radar. Right. It's um yeah, it's really interesting. Like, I know I've I've had conversations with people about this podcast before. And one of the things you hear sometimes is, oh, wow, shipwrecks. So, like, you talk about the Titanic and then, like, what else? Like, are there enough of those to do a show about? And, like, yeah. Like, when you when you can stumble <laughs> across something like this, yeah. there's plenty. Like, there, there's always a story to be told. And I think we talk about that every week that you don't always know going into it, like, what kind of story it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the story is more than just the shipwreck. Like, in this case, it's very much the secrecy and the cover-up. And the, you know, finally being able to honor and, you know, mourn the people that are lost because they weren't appropriately, you know, mourned when it happened. Mm-hmm. You never know what kind of episode it's going to be. One episode is very technical. Another one's more of a human driven story. Another one is just more of a global politics story. It's it's very interesting how they unfold. Yeah. Back to that. It's it's not to undercut the very premise of this podcast, but it's in, in terms of how and why ships sink you can kind of slot them into three big categories of some sort of technical mechanical failure, a human error, or being intentionally sunk, say, in combat. And so in, in those three broad categories, sometimes they overlap. In terms of how this happens, a lot of times that's really not the in- most interesting part. And the human story is far more interesting, whether it's the lead up to it or the aftermath. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's something that I see every week when we do this. Like you said, you you never quite know where the story is going to take you or what you're going to have to learn about when you're doing the story. Right. Uh, and this is this is a good example of that. 
Yeah, this one is, um, it's probably not what I had in mind like seven months ago when I started thinking about ideas for this. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I think I was thinking more like we're going to talk about uh, Great Lake shipwrecks or we're going to talk about, you know, whatever, like passenger liners that sink. We're, but like, we're going to do it morphs a, into different things. We're going to do a 12 part series about the Edmund Fitzgerald. <laughs> oh, God, I can't imagine. Maybe one day it'll be Patreon content. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it, it is. It's just really interesting how these stories kind of uh, change and unfold. And it's just cool to be able to bring a little attention to something like this that, like mm-hmm. we keep saying, like, we did not know about this prior to a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. in my case. Yeah, it's so. cool. It's cool to have this podcast because I think we, I don't know, well, I was thinking about this last week about how when we do this, it's a, a lot of podcasts are presented from the perspective of you have someone who has researched this thing, they're presenting it from an expert's perspective. And I, I don't, I think I feel like that's never really the point of this podcast. It's a lot more of, we are more or less learning along with everyone. And this is, it's just a fun way to learn about things and pick up things that I had no reason to do otherwise. Yeah, it is. I agree that uh, a lot of things are presented as like, uh, Oh, I'm an expert on this topic and I'm going to tell you. And, it's like you said, a lot of times we are learning about it right along with everybody else. And I don't know. It's fun. It's fun. It's definitely like, like you said, like it's not something that you uh, probably even ever thought you would be doing because you didn't have the interest in shipwrecks like I did. But, uh, you know, we're not experts. We don't know about each and every one of these. We just spend a lot of time reading and researching. And uh, I don't know. It's a fun journey to be on. It's, and it's yeah. fun to, to bring attention to something like this. Exactly. So, yeah, I know we've kind of had a military theme going lately. I guess we've just kind of started exploring that area of things. Well, I guess I've had a military theme. I guess, Well, you had the... Uh, done a, I've done a few. We, we, you've done a couple. The With the uh, not so much actual combat, we have kind of had a overarching military theme the last, I'd say, month, month or two. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we'll get in those veins sometimes. Those do... Those are good because that that does attract listeners that might not check out the show. Otherwise, that's always a good thing. Getting more people to listen who you know might listen to an episode about uh, a submarine when they might not listen to an episode about a car ferry sinking. Uh, right. So yeah, I mean yeah, that's very, that's cool. It's very interesting. I'm I'm okay with that. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll sure. keep, we'll keep on covering a, a pretty diverse range of stuff. You know, we don't want to get too locked into any one thing. Right. Yeah. So that's pretty much all I have on this one. Is there any other thoughts you had? Anything else about the podcast you wanted to talk about? I don't believe so. Um, I'll just reiterate from the beginning, you know, follow us on social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram. I don't I still haven't really done much with good pods. We're on there now, technically. So I think you can I think you can subscribe and listen to the show on good pods now. Cool. Um, I have a profile on there. I I don't really do much with it. So if you follow me, I don't know if that will really get you anything, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's all there again, Patreon, check it out a few bucks. You get a little bit of bonus content and you help to support the show and, you know, increase the quality over time. Do we know the August topic for the bonus episode? Uh, the August topic, I believe what I want to do, this needs to go through the final approval from the board of directors. I would like to talk about the scuttling of the German fleet at Scapa Flow. All right, staying on that military theme. At the end of World War One. 
it doesn't it doesn't exactly fit the the sort of the the template of a normal episode so it's it's not exactly what we normally cover but i it technically i think counts uh under under the umbrella so I think that's more like those bonus episodes. You know, that's where we're going to do stuff that's I think it's, a little different. I think it's too good of a story not to talk about for a ship-related thing. Uh, I yeah. just think it's a great story. There are there are some absolutely, like, honestly, like, really funny parts of the story that I really want to talk about. So I think that's going to be bonus content for August. Nice. So if that's something that sounds interesting, uh, consider the Patreon. Um, sign up, and uh, you'll have access to that. With all that being said, I think uh, I think we're done. I think we got this one wrapped up. All right. So, yeah, I hope everybody has a great week. Uh, hopefully you enjoy this episode. Check out some of our previous episodes. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody.